Steve Jobs was the computer whiz who founded Apple Computers in the early days of the exploding PC industry. Jobs was stunned by the tremendous growth that his startup company had experienced, and he realized that he needed help. Jobs had a good handle on the developmental and the technological side of the business, but he needed some expertise on the managerial side. Well, Steve Jobs decided to hire an experienced executive who could provide his business, his budding company, some good business savvy and some overall leadership. And so he scheduled a trip to New York City to recruit John Scully, who at the time was a top executive at Pepsi-Cola. Well, Jobs spent several days trying to persuade Scully. He extolled the potentials of Apple computers in the computer industry. And yet he sensed that his conversation was going nowhere. He had this sinking feeling that John Scully wasn't interested in his offer. So he made a last-ditch pitch to sell the executive on his company. In desperation, Steve Jobs, he looked John Scully in the eye and he challenged him. Mr. Scully, do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water or do you want a chance to change the world? Later in his autobiography, John Scully says that that was the question that jarred him, that forced him to examine the direction of his life. Shortly thereafter, John Scully left PepsiCo and joined Apple Computers. Well, this morning, I want to challenge you in the same way that Jobs challenged Scully. Do you want to spend the rest of your life on superficial stuff, on selling sugar water, or do you want a chance to change the world? Since becoming a Christian, I've discovered the most immense thrill on earth is to be used by God to lead another person to Jesus. Base jumping, skydiving, bungee cords, hang gliders are tame in comparison. Hey, when we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in someone else's salvation, we're not only changing the world, we're populating heaven. In comparison, making money and hobbies and sports and business tastes like bottled boredom. Do you want to invest your one and only life, the only life you've got, your time, your energy, your resources on sugared water? Are you interested in helping to change the world? If you like living on the cutting edge, if you enjoy high stakes, spine tingling, risk taking, adrenaline pumping, incredibly significant activity, seek no further. Join the grand adventure. Be a witness for Jesus Christ. Here in Acts chapter 8, Philip takes up the challenge to change the world. His story teaches us three important truths. First, lost people matter to God. Second, God maneuvers His people in order to reach lost people. And then third, Philip maximizes the opportunity that God gives him. Here's our outline this morning. What matters how we're maneuvered, and then ways that we can maximize our opportunities. First, we need to be reminded that lost people matter to God. In the chapter prior to Acts chapter 8, the church had experienced explosive growth. The church at Jerusalem no longer just adds, it now multiplies. 
In Acts chapter 8, the same phenomenal growth occurs in Samaria. There are now tens of thousands of believers in Jerusalem, thousands more in Samaria. And you'd think that God would have enough to worry about. Yet despite these colossal crowds in these two strategic centers, the Lord sees an African diplomat headed back to Ethiopia, no doubt with his entourage. He's on a deserted road. He's headed in the opposite direction. He's seeking salvation. And it prompts God to dispatch a disciple named Philip to share the gospel with this Ethiopian. That God sent Philip was amazing, truly amazing. For if you read the first half of chapter 8, you discover that Philip was the man spearheading the revival in Samaria. He was the point person. God was using Philip to initiate the work. Wouldn't it be a a better utilization of personnel to keep the general in Samaria and send a private down to this lone traveler? Well, apparently not. God had such love for the Ethiopian that he removed Philip from the action in Samaria and sent him to this one solitary seeker on this deserted country road. I think it proves just how much God loves each individual. You might be a number to the bank. You might be an ID code at school. But when God looks into the crowd, he recognizes your name. He knows each one of us personally. It's true, people matter to God. As Augustine once put it, God loves each one of us as if there were only one of us to love. You remember in Luke chapter 15, Jesus reminds us that God is like a shepherd with a hundred sheep. Yet if just a single sheep strays, he leaves the 99 to search for that one. Obviously, God cares about each of us specifically. Realize, Jesus never met a person he didn't love. He never saw a person he didn't value. When he visited Matthew's party, he even rubbed shoulders with the seedy people, like the tax collectors and the prostitutes. These were the kind of people that you and I might be nervous around. These were the people that kept a tattoo parlor in business. These were the ones with funny colored hair and pierced body parts. These were the disenfranchised folks, the down and out. We're talking some seriously strayed sheep. Yet every one of them mattered to Jesus. Everyone. When the religious crowd criticized Jesus for being interested in the underbelly of society, he answered their objections. Those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Hey, Jesus cares for the person who makes you uncomfortable. The guy who drinks and smokes and goes to wild parties. The girl who cusses like a sailor and only speaks the name of Jesus when she's cursing. The person who's all sugar and spice when you're around, then cuts you down behind your back. Did you know that Jesus died for your neighbor with the barking dog? He really did. The driver in the car who's slowing down. The rival on the team who's after your position. The clerk at the checkout who's taking your money. The co-worker or classmate you view as a nuisance. Jesus died for them all. Jesus cares for the people that are outside your circle. 
Those who don't look or think or act or talk like you do. One author writes, You have never locked eyes with another human being who isn't valuable to God. Jesus died for everyone we've ever met or will meet. People matter to God, and they need to matter to us. Hey, I don't want to reach heaven and hold the nail-scarred hand of my Lord Jesus without having cared about the folks he died to save. Well, notice first, lost people matter to God. But second, God maneuvers his people in order to reach lost people. You know, it's interesting that God uses people to reach people. You know, we might take that fact for granted, but when you step back from the situation, it really is quite amazing that he would rely on such insufficient or ineffective means. He could have assigned the task to angels. I'm sure angelic messengers would be more consistent and clearer and more confident witnesses than you and I. I can't picture an angel having to muster up his courage or grope for the right words. Angels never get sweaty palms or a lump in their throat. That's us. Yet God uses the useless. He's planned it so that He won't do it without us, and we can't do it without Him. We are His messengers, and God has no alternatives. He has no alternates here on the bench. The world's destiny is in our hands. And it's when you realize how much people matter to God that people will begin to matter to you. There'll be an ache in your heart when you see the people Jesus died to heal in pain and confused. And when people begin to matter to you like they matter to God, then His Spirit will begin to maneuver you into positions where you can be a strategic witness. Notice here, Philip had an ear to the heavens. Yes, God was doing a wonderful work in Samaria, but Philip was still open to whatever and wherever God might send him. Boy, if it had been me in the midst of this glorious revival there in Samaria, and God had asked me to journey to the lonely highway to witness to a solitary man, I might have objected. God, this is my chance to pastor a megachurch. Why don't you let me stay right here in Samaria? But when God whispered in Philip's ear, he was quick to obey. Philip was flexible and open and compliant, easily molded to the will of God. All that mattered to Philip was all that mattered to God, and that was the person or people that God wanted him to reach. Perhaps you remember the Mercedes-Benz commercial that showed one of their cars colliding into a concrete wall during a safety test. There was minimal damage to the crash dummy. Well, the announcer asked the engineer why the company has never enforced the patent on their shock-absorbing car body. The design has been emulated by car companies all over the world. The engineer looks right into the camera and he replies, because in life, some things are just too important not to share. And this is how we need to feel about the gospel. Nothing should get in the way of our mission. Our whole world, our goals and schedules and plans for the weekend and leisure activities and work ambitions, every aspect of our life should revolve around this wonderful task of getting the good news to the people who need it. 
Hey, when God knows that my central aim is to reach the people that he loves, then he'll begin to, begin to maneuver my life to reach those people who are already prepared to receive his love. See, I can assume that God is making arrangements. The server that waits on my table, the Uber driver who gives me a lift, the neighbor who moves in next door, the coworker assigned to my team has been sent to me from God because God knows that I care. You know, it's been said, when men have the will to speak for their Lord, they find no shortage of opportunities to do so. I agree. Notice God speaks to Philip in verse 26 to go to Gaza. Then he speaks to him again in verse 29 to go near and overtake the chariot. Like a director on the set, God is nudging and prodding and whispering and pointing and moving Philip into place. And God does the same with us. I think we turn a real corner in our Christian lives when we realize that the Holy Spirit can and does oversee our thinking. That the Holy Spirit can implant thoughts into my head. Do you realize that? On occasion, He'll give us specific, spontaneous, supernatural directions. On other times, He guides our thoughts more naturally. Later, we find out that the thought we had wasn't just a good idea. It was His input. Author Lloyd Ogilvy writes, The adventure begins when we love the Lord with our minds and dare to believe that He can invade the tissues of our forebrain to guide our thinking, imagination, and will. He becomes the Lord of our intelligence, the generator of possibilities we never dreamed could be. Couple that with the will to act on what He guides, and you have the secret of exciting living. Well, Philip was always open to a divine appointment. That's how we need to live. A couple of years ago, I was scheduled to speak at a marriage conference in South Florida. Well, a hurricane canceled my plans, canceled the conference, and obviously changed my plans. And I can remember waking up the next morning at home, bummed out about the missed opportunity. That's when the phone rang. It was a desperate call from my neighbor. She told me about her adult child who was going through all kinds of problems and wanted to talk to someone about God. She asked me if I was available, and now I was. What I had interpreted as a missed opportunity was in reality a mid-course correction. Hey, the divine dispatcher knows what he's doing. God is our air traffic controller, and he gets us where we need to be when we need to be there. You know, all too often what kills our motivation to witness is that we assume we'll be rejected before we ever open our mouths. I suggest that's a tragic miscalculation. Yes, there have been times when I've shared my faith and gotten a harsh reaction. But more so, my efforts have been respected. I've spoken to folks that I thought would be hostile to the gospel, but afterwards they thanked me for caring enough to speak up. I believe people are more open to the gospel today than at any other time in history. People don't want to be beat over the head with a Bible, but if you love them and lead them gently to Christ, they're receptive. People today are hungry for the truth. I always like telling the story of a young man I picked up years ago. He was hitchhiking. 
He needed to go to the intersection of Rockbridge Road and Memorial Drive. It was about five minutes away from where I picked him up. Well, on the way there, I shared the Lord with this young man. And as he opened the door to leave, I asked him if he wanted to pray and commit his life to Jesus Christ. And he looks at me and he says, rather matter-of-factly, sure. Again, the whole conversation had lasted no more than five minutes. And I'm thinking, Lord, this is just too easy. I've left something out. I need to be sure that this man is serious. And so again, I asked him if he understood that he was making a commitment. This is a real commitment now of your life to Jesus Christ. Are you sure you understand this? He started to get agitated. He didn't like my hesitance. Finally, I asked him, I said, now, are you really sincere? I mean, do you believe in Jesus with all your heart? And I'll never forget his answer. He looks me square in the eye and he says, well, hell yeah. (laughs) He made his point. (laughs) Hey, I stopped grilling him at that point and we prayed. I'm just saying folks are a lot more receptive to the gospel than we assume. Realize when the Lord nudges you in a direction, it's because he's at work on the other end of the connection. He's maneuvering you. He's working in your heart. But likewise, he's at work in the heart of the other person. He's preparing them for the rendezvous. Look at this Ethiopian. When Philip boards the chariot, the man is reading the Bible. I mean, he's gone to Jerusalem in search of God. He's left with more questions and answers. The only thing he got there in Jerusalem of any value was the Gideon Bible he took from his hotel room. Now he's got it open. And he's reading Isaiah 53 of all passages. It was an incredible prophecy of the saving work of Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross. God is at work on his end just as he was working on Philip. This is what makes being a witness for Jesus so exhilarating. Yes, at times it's scary. Yes, it's a little risky. Yes, you'll have some butterflies in your stomach. But when you obey the Lord and reach out to the person God has put in your path, you are participating in a truly spiritual and supernatural event. Be a witness and you get to live a miracle. And that's more living than most people do in their lifetime. Missionary William Carey used to say, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Why sit on the sidelines, friends? Why not get into the game? Why let fear rob you of the enjoyment of being part of a venture in faith and see what God might do? Listen to the words of author Sam Shoemaker. I stay near the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It's the door through which people walk when they find God. There's no use to my going way inside and staying there when so many are still outside and they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And so many people only find a wall where a door ought to be. They creep along the wall like blind people with outstretched, groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, yet they never find it. So I stay near the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for people to find that door, the door to God. 
The most important thing anyone can do is to take hold of one of those blind, groping hands and to put it on the latch, the latch that only clicks and opens to the person's own touch. People die outside the door. As starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter, die for one of what is within their grasp, those on the inside of the door live, live because they have found it. Nothing else matters compared to helping those outside find it and open it and walk in and find Him. So I stay near the door. Do you stay near the door? We need to understand that lost people matter to God. That God wants to maneuver His people in position to reach lost people. And finally, we need to know that we can maximize the opportunities that God gives us. And notice the three ways that Philip takes advantage and makes the most of this supernatural encounter. First, in verse 29, he overtakes the chariot. What I picture here is Philip having to run alongside the chariot for a few hundred feet. I mean, this Ethiopian, he's an important dignitary, an official ambassador in the African government. He's not about to speak to just any old passerby. Philip had to prove his sincerity and to work to earn a hearing. He had to be persistent. A friend once told me about a salesman in his company who was constantly earning the top awards. This fellow was a soft-spoken, mild-mannered man. And the other salesman wondered how in the world did he do it. One month at the sales meeting, he was asked the secret of his success. This super salesman said simply, make the calls, make the calls, make the calls. And then he sat back down. His secret was his persistence. And the same is true with us reaching our friends with the gospel. You don't try once and give up. God may bring us in contact with the right person, but when we first meet them, it may not be the right time. We've got to be patient. We've got to work to stay involved in that person's life. Look what happens next. In verse 31, after some brief dialogue, the Ethiopian invites Philip into his chariot. In other words, Philip's persistence pays off. He's now on board in this man's life. You see, the second way to maximize an opportunity is to witness on board a person's life. You know, it's true, folks are open to the gospel, but they're more receptive to it when it's presented by people that they know and trust. People today can be skeptical. We're living in a cynical society. That's why they'll be more receptive to the message if they know the messenger. And this is why, in my opinion, just my opinion, but door-to-door evangelism may not be the best approach to personal evangelism, at least not these days. I read of a woman in Long Island, New York, who snapped when a Jehovah's Witness came to her door. When she opened the door, she stuck the nose of a shotgun in the guy's face And she started screaming, I'm sick of you people coming here. Door-to-door witnessing may work with some people, but not everyone welcomes an uninvited visitor to their home with open arms. Last week I was driving down the expressway when I saw this man on the overpass. He was jumping up and down. He was waving his arms like something was on fire. 
I thought perhaps somebody was injured and he was trying to signal for help. Then I noticed his sign and his shirt. It was a Bible verse. He was trying to attract attention to the scripture and have people look it up at home. That was his presentation of the gospel. And I'm not against these kinds of approaches. T-shirts and bumper stickers and John 3.16 signs at sporting events. I mean, these kinds of gimmicks are harmless as long as they're not a substitute for the most effective method of sharing your faith. And that's coming on board another person's life. Statistics show that 85% of committed Christians came to Christ through a friend's witness, through someone they knew. Philip overtakes a chariot, but then he undertakes a relationship. See, if you can first prove to a person you really care about them and cultivate a friendship with them, that they're not just another potential notch on your Bible cover, then when the time is right, they'll be more open to the message that you want to present. It's been said, before folks will care about what you know, they need to know that you care. When you take the time, when you make the effort to build a genuine friendship, then by your actions you're proving that you live what you believe. When a lost person sees firsthand how Christ has made a difference in your life, then they'll be quicker to desire the same changes in their own life. Joe Aldrich says it best, Christians are to be the good news before they share the good news. Reminds me of a former alcoholic named Joe. Before his conversion, Joe was derelict. He was a wino with the best of them. But when Jesus came into his life, he was made brand new. The love of Christ just oozed from Joe. He started working at a downtown mission, and he did whatever he was asked. No task was too low for Joe. He was the one who would wipe up the vomit and clean out the toilets. He loved these people on the street, and he tried to meet their needs. One night, the chaplain had just finished his usual salvation message when a convicted drunk man, he ran to the altar. He was crying out, Oh God, make me like Joe. Make me like Joe. The chaplain thought the fellow needed to be corrected. He said, Sir, it would be better if you prayed, Make me like Jesus. The man looked at him with a puzzled expression, and he asked, he says, Is Jesus anything like Joe? How's that for a man with a powerful witness? It's true, when your life is like Jesus, then the people around you will want Jesus in their life. Well, finally, I want you to notice that Philip not only overtakes the Ethiopian and boards his chariot, but there comes a point when Philip opens his mouth to speak. He cultivates a friendship in order to articulate the truth. Read verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. See, building a relationship, living out your witness are important. But there comes a point when you need to present a verbal witness. You need to study and prepare now so that at just the right time, you'll be able, as Philip did, to preach Jesus to an inquisitive soul. Overtake the chariot, that is, be persistent. Cultivate a relationship, be personal. But then there comes a point when you need to articulate the truth and be vocal. 
There's really no point to building relationships and reaching out in love if we don't love someone enough to tell them the truth. It's sad but true. Many Christians are like the Arctic River, frozen over at the mouth. We need to thaw out our frozen tongues and be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within us. See, it's when you open your mouth that the excitement builds. You can run alongside the chariot, even climb on board, and your pulse never rises. But the rush comes, the buzz begins when you open your mouth. Read the conversation here and put yourself in Philip's sandals. The back and forth, the give and the take, the questions and the answers. Together these two men dive into the scripture and Philip leads this Ethiopian to Jesus. He never gets pushy. He simply tells him about Jesus and he lets the traveler draw his own conclusions. And as the conversation winds down, what a thrill it must have been when this Ethiopian looks to Philip looks him in the eye and asks him, what hinders me from being baptized? (laughs) Can you imagine Philip's thrill? I'm sure he had to hold back his joy so that he could answer the question. He tells him in verse 37, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the guy replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse 39 tells us that after the Ethiopian's baptism, Philip was caught away by the Holy Spirit to the city of Azotus. He was miraculously transported some 35 miles away. Apparently, God used Philip for rapture practice. But maybe there's some symbolism here in the picture. Whenever I've had the privilege of leading a person to Christ, I've always walked away on cloud nine. It's definitely an enrapturing experience. It's a jubilation. Impacting a person's life for eternity is the most spectacular experience I know. It's been said, the only thing better than going to heaven is taking somebody with you. And it's no surprise to me that in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 19, Paul says that the person who leads others to Christ will one day receive a crown of rejoicing. How fitting is that? Leading other people to Jesus brings joy, both now and forever. Today, if you want to recapture the joy of your salvation, then let me suggest you get off the sidelines and you get into the game. I've heard it said, if a man has a soul and he has And if that soul can be won or lost for eternity, and it can, then the most important thing in the world is to bring that man to Jesus Christ. There's a Palestinian Christian who owns a gift shop on the Via Della Rosa there in Jerusalem. Over the years, she's given away thousands of dollars to help the poor in her neighborhood, and she consistently shares the gospel with everyone who comes into her shop. Recently, the lady shared her motive with an interviewer. She said, God did not place me in this world just to take up space. It's not enough just to go along. God wants me to make a difference where I can. And the same is true for us. See, here's the million-dollar question this morning. Are you just taking up space or are you making a difference? In conclusion, let me ask you the question that we started with 
the question that Steve Jobs used to jar John Scully. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water? Or do you want a chance to change the world? We change the world one person at a time when we share the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's my challenge to you. The next time a divine appointment occurs, when God is working in you and God is working in them, whether it's at the soccer game or in the supermarket or at the break room and work, don't let it pass. Seize the moment. Open your mouth. Take advantage of what God is doing. Become a part of God's miracle. You see, people matter to God. He maneuvers His people to reach lost people, and He wants us to maximize our opportunities. The only question left is, are we willing?